Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're opening a new chapter and a new theme, and it's the theme of legalism and breaking the back of legalism. If you have never thought through the issues of legalism, on a deep level, I want to take you there because it's a very subtle sin on the outside and a real destructive one on the inside. It's something Jesus was very strongly against and really gives scathing rebukes uh, to the Pharisees over. And uh, we need to pay attention to what Jesus has sounded the alarm about in legalism and how harmful it can be and how to discern it, see it for what it is, and avoid it and go the other way. When you think of legalism, when I think of it, I think of about one of three categories. First, I think in terms of the Bible times of Jesus, and I think legalism almost is a synonym with the Pharisees. Synonymous to Pharisees, Sadducees, to scribes, to that religion of uh, do's and don'ts and the heavy burden that they were laying on. Secondly, I think of the cult religions, think of Mormonism, think of the Mormons that come to your door, try to sell you different um, things and devices for security systems so that they can build a relationship with you and um, talk about how Jesus isn't God. So you, you need to be aware of that, but there's a lot of do's and don'ts. In legalism there, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the extra biblical writings that they say are on the same par and authority with the Bible, and they're really not. So you have those things. And then you have the legalism found inside the church and inside the Protestant church, fundamentalism. And fundamentalism isn't a bad word, but it became a synonym for do's and don'ts and um, the saints and the ain'ts, even with inside the church in Christendom, where if your hair was too long or touching your collar, then you're in sin. If you dance, if you, uh, you know, drink, if you smoke, if you go to certain movies, then you are not a spiritually saved person or you're really on the edge and, and someone needs to Um, sort of put pressure on you until you change. That's legalism. That's the control religion um, within Christianity. Uh, What is the latest sort of trend of legalism that I have seen and observed and talked about a lot from the pulpit, you know about, but it's it's the woke um, religion that is being foisted upon the church. It's more pervasive than you think. It's cloaked in the idea of social activism, and you're either part of social activism as part of your gospel witness, or you might not have the true gospel. It's as simple as that. It's neo-orthodoxy reborn from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the social Jesus, social gospel. It's being inspired to do activist work in the name of Christ, and if you don't participate in certain things, if you don't um, perform certain acts of penance that you should feel sorry for, you know, what you've done or really that you haven't done, then you are, you are not fulfilling the gospel requirements. And that's a very dangerous line of reasoning that you have to be aware of, discern, and, and, not, and not fall prey to. I'm not against doing um, activist things or, or being inspired to you know, vote certain ways or be involved in certain things. Not at all. I just don't attach that to saving grace. I don't attach it to the message of the gospel. The gospel is by grace alone, not by works. And so we have to be clear on that. And when works are added, it gets very, very alarming to me, um, especially for people I respect. 
there, you have to ask this. This is the question that is my litmus test for things like that. Trends in the church or trends in the name of Christ. If it's inspiring both to a Christian and to a non-Christian at the same time, I put a little bit of an alarm on that. And when you have conferences, reconciliation conferences, uh, you know, conferences to, to do certain things where, where it's mixing people together that are unbelievers and believers, and they're all inspired, they're all excited about it. I get nervous. When, it, when someone in the name of God writes a book and it hits the bestseller list real quick, and that's you know, some evangelical Christian, but he's writing this message that all of the consumers in Barnes & Noble would want, that makes me, I wonder if that's of the Lord or not. You have to be careful with those things. Test things with the true gospel and test things in terms of what Jesus said, and that's what we're doing here. Jesus is unpacking legalism for us. And it begins in Matthew 15. This is really a series I'm going to do at least one or two. I mean, at least two sermons, but maybe more on discerning legalism, understanding what it is and what it isn't. And the harm that it does can be synthesized at the end of the verse of verse six. If you look at this, it can all be summarized under this phrase. It's where the word of God is made void. It's tradition by tradition, Jesus said, you have made void the word of God. Literally, it's the idea of making something that is super powerful, which is the word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like, you could just make it by analogy, bright like the sun. Nothing's taking the power of the sun away. The Bible is always powerful. But someone who is ensnared in legalism can be so trapped that, that literally their heart turns away from the word of God, turns away from the brightness of the glory of God, and, it's, and that person is rendered empty inside. That's what legalism does. It's, it shrinks the soul. So what makes void the word of God? That's the question. What, what steps of legalism are before us that bring people to a point where the word of God is empty to them? Well, number one, it's when people elevate tradition above God's word. That's the first step into legalism. Elevating or putting higher than the word of God tradition. Tradition. It's what people live for. And that's adding to scripture. Legalism centers on adding to scripture. It's what the Pharisees championed. Let me just read verses 1 to 6 to get us started. This is kind of the first half of the sermon. It's our section that uh, we're going to dive into, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. Let's stop there. Let's start here. So it's adding scripture or adding something to scripture. It's what the Pharisees said. Look at verse one. The Pharisees, they're showing up to meet um, with Jesus. They're coming from home base, Jerusalem, 70 miles 
um, up the way, Transjordan, to get up to the Sea of Galilee area, Capernaum, where Jesus is at this point on the west side. You've been learning sort of the Bible map geography, Bible map geography there. That's where he is. He's, he's being confronted by these Pharisees and these teachers, these scribes, these masters of the law, and they're taking a bead on Jesus. And on the surface, it looks pretty subtle. They're just checking in, just looking under the hood. Hey, what's going on? I, I'm hearing that your disciples aren't washing when they're eating. Now, on the surface, it looks pretty harmless. And I think it's important to see that that's how legalism comes across. A lot of people view legalism almost in a positive way, like, well, I'll do these things or I'll submit in this way because I at least want to be a good Boy Scout and do the right thing rather than being a libertine and just go and do whatever I want to do. So I'd rather just follow the rules. And what could be wrong with that? Well, Jesus has no time for this. This is an interrogation on a cosmic level. Jesus knows that he's protecting the gospel. He's protecting the way into heaven. He's protecting people from damning themselves to hell where they become void in their heart, empty in their heart to the word of God. He's protecting children from harmful, false teachers. This is a battle on a cosmic proportion, looks benign and harmless on the outside. It is a kingdom battle on the inside. It's a battle between the true and false gospel, between legalism and freedom. And so these people came as guardians of the law. That's what a Pharisee and scribe was doing. We're the police. We're showing up. They had done this to John the Baptist, John 119. It says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John the Baptist saying, who are you? Well, here they're doing it again with Jesus. And they're saying, what are you doing? Well, what was happening? Well, there was a buzz around town saying that the disciples were not washing. Maybe they were observing around Capernaum. But remember, they had just come across the Sea of Galilee. We're on the other side in the desert land. They had just had 5,000 men fed, but 20,000 in terms of the whole families that were all there. It was an open air expression of we're eating Endless bread is coming. It's amazing. And we've got this open display of that. There was no washing going on. And so that buzz probably had traveled back with them across the Sea of Galilee. And the Pharisees and scribes are trying to call that out and say, Jesus, look, we get that you do things unorthodox in unorthodox ways. You had this open air fellowship, but you're not ceremonially clean. I mean, the Pharisees are not concerned for their hygiene. They're not concerned with anything. Really, the law only states that the high priest and the the Levitical priests were the ones who would do the ceremonial washing. They're using tradition and they're saying, look, you're breaking the rules of the elders. We are laying this on you. They're not washing. They're not following our application to the law. And so they're out of compliance. That's the problem. We know about the 20,000 that were fed and... There's something wrong with that. Well, their legalism, the scribes and Pharisees' legalism was blinding them to seeing Jesus. Think about that. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see the bread of life. They're worried about the washing. Like out of all the law that they're going to hold Jesus accountable for, it's the washing law. Like it's not even a real law. It's their form of tradition and application to the law where they're saying, look, they're not in compliance. That's what they're bringing up to Jesus. This is the big scandal. Well, what, what would that have looked like? Well, Alfred Edersheim in The Life and Times of Jesus describes the washing in this way. Listen to how fastidious it is. 
Water jars were kept ready to be used before every meal. The minimum amount of water was a quarter of a log enough to fill one and a half eggshells. The water was first poured on both hands, held with fingers pointed upward, and it must run down the arm as far as the wrist and drop off from the wrist. For the water was now itself unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And if it ran down the fingers again, it would render them unclean, having touched the unclean hands. The process was repeated with hands held in the downward direction, the fingers pointing down. And finally, each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of the other. A strict Jew would do this before every meal and between every course of every meal. That's just weird. But I'll say this, but I'll say this. I mean, there's been a a lot of hand-washing going on these days and a lot of people talking about hand-washing and how much and when is enough and was that in compliance and on and on. I counseled a guy one time years and years ago at a different church and he was filled with this sort of imprisoned OCD. He'd be up in the night, you know, he couldn't sleep at night. His parents would be over here. He's a young adult. He'd check all the locks again and again and again, check all the burners in the kitchen and then wash his hands and wash it. I just remember him talking about washing his hands over and over again. There was a rabbi allegedly who was in prison who was offered water, but he used it for ceremonial washing instead of drinking it. And he said, I'd rather die than transgress the tradition of the elders. Now, here's a true-to-life story. Deb and um, Debbie Floyd and um, Daryl Floyd, an elder, they were in the Holy Land. They were in Jerusalem. And he was, we were talking about the sermon. He said, you know, it was interesting. I was in Jerusalem. We were there. And we were in the, our hotel. And they have different elevator systems. And they have one that's called the Shabbat elevator, which is the Hebrew derivation for Sabbath. And it's a Sabbath elevator. And the guy was nervously looking at the signs, trying to get to the Sabbath elevator, not a regular elevator, because the Shabbat elevator, it stops on every floor. It's programmed to do that so you don't have to push the button on the Sabbath. That's what it's about. That's a picture of legalism. And I looked it up online. Wikipedia verified it's true. The internet said it was true. There is a Shabbat elevator. Legalism is working from the outside in not the inside out. That's how you can discern it in your own life. Am I doing this for external purposes or am I doing this from the heart with the Lord? This is my own heart check. This is my own self-awareness. Do I operate from the inside out or from the outside in? And to be drawn into legalism is to drift away from the truth, to drift away from the word of God. You're here and the drift current is taking you here and you wake up and you go, oh man, I am under bondage. And what the Pharisees and scribes were doing is they're saying, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. They're saying you are an insubordinate. And they were, tradi- they were leveraging power um, through the tradition. They want uh, traditions and policies of procedure are always for the sake of keeping power. And that's what they were doing. How dangerous is it when you begin to corrupt the gospel with tradition? Well, Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible in our canon, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 18 says, if anyone adds to them, adds to the prophecies, adds to God's word there, God will add to them the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share from the tree of life, meaning you're not really a Christian. If you're someone who is... Cutting and pasting with the Bible, adding to it is dangerous. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul was fighting for the unity of the church. Corinth was very disunified. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. 
or Peter. And Paul said, I have in verse six of chapter four, first Corinthians, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos. In other words, I'm under the word of God. I'm not bigger than the Bible for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. I'm going to be subservient to the word of God. I'm not making up new rules. Preaching another Jesus is damnable for Galatians 1.8. If we hear from an angel from heaven or we're speaking it and we preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 2 Corinthians 11 um, verses 1 to 4 speaks of um, the pure devotion to Christ gospel verse 3. But I'm afraid as uh, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's inside out, not outside in. Pure, simple devotion to Christ. It's where everything is centralized in terms of good Christian living versus legalism. Verse four, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, different Jesus than the one we proclaimed, and if we receive a different spirit, meaning a different teaching from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from what you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's being sarcastic there. Matthew 23, just look over. We don't have time to really explore this yet. We'll get there in a few weeks, months, or years. But Matthew 23, this is the most excoriating rebuke, series of rebukes that I find in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, perhaps all the Bible. This is severe. This is where Jesus takes the flamethrower and just levels it, you know, this level and just, just eviscerates what the Pharisees were doing. It says, then, said to, then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes Long, They love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue. You skip down to verse 13, but woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of God in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte or convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is why it goes after legalism, because false teachers that are legalistic hurt people. They harm people's souls. They, they harden hearts. It's causing children to stumble. It's horrible what people will do, and it looks so good. Just obey these rules. We're just giving you some applications. We're just laying it out there. This is Satan's trick. You're fine if you follow the rules. You're good when you're really not. And Jesus goes on from there. We could go through all of that in Matthew 23, but for time's sake, we'll save it. It's a severe rebuke. He's rebuking hypocrisy. And in verse three, Jesus flips the script on the Pharisees. Look at verse three. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Like you're worried about me breaking your tradition, but why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
Now, is all tradition bad? Let me just say that we, we're filled with tradition. I mean, we do tradition here. We have an 8.30 service and we have a 10.30 service. Why? Because we just thought that'd be a good thing to do, um, you know, in this season of our church. And I think so far, so good. We, we sit down after, I think, the third song or the offering song, right? And we're sitting down. Why? Because we used to pass bags around and, and collect an offering, but we don't do that right now. We give different ways, but we still sit down. Why? Well, it's kind of nice. I enjoy the rest. And, um, and then we stand back up. I don't know. I mean, we have worship of the round once a month, first Sunday of the month. Why? She just made it like, let's do that. That'll be fun. Let's do that. But if I, if we leverage those traditions and make those preferences, um, principles of spirituality, obligations, um, directives, and, and, and tests on people's lives, that's what is wrong. That's what Jesus is calling out. That's the satanic legalism. We have to be very careful. You say, this doesn't apply to me. Well, when's the last time you got wound around the axle about something that was happening in church or not happening in church? Something that you wanted so bad that you begin to sinfully get angry about. That's falling prey to legalism or that's being a legalist. Cult religions will add to the Bible. All these extra biblical sources, they say, carry the same authority as the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the New World Translation. But here we're talking about the Mishnah, the Mishnah. And this is out of the oral tradition that came from reading the Bible, reading the law of God. And then through the oral tradition of that, they begin to scribes begin to write that down and codify it. And then suddenly it became equal weight with the Bible. It's a very easy thing to have happen. John MacArthur said when the Jews were in exile, uh, meaning Babylonian captivity, the scribes, um, first being Ezra is one of them, assembled and copied books of scripture. They began making comments on various passages that seemed unclear and gradually a larger accumulation of interpretations developed until there was one, there was more interpretations than scripture. Distinction between scripture and traditions became less and less distinct. Tradition more revered than God's word itself. By the third century AD, the Mishnah was in full force. The Helica or the oral tradition had been codified and where the priestly washings became required for everyone else. Tradition was justified in this way. This tradition is putting a fence around God's word. We're just trying to protect God's word. That's why we do it. And so that's why you have to obey us. I mean, it's an easy thing for people to fall prey into. Traditions became ridiculous. It was in rabbinic tradition that you couldn't look look at yourself in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might find a gray hair that you would need to pluck and that'd be work. You can't spit on the ground. That was a rule because if you spit on the ground and you scuffed it with your shoe, you might be doing some agricultural farming, doing a little bit of dirt movement there, and that would be wrong. The Roman Catholic Church, they've elevated tradition to be on par with Scripture through what are called um, ex-cathedra pronouncements. Ex-cathedra means out from the throne. It's the idea that the priests are speaking for God from the throne. The Pope is the father or the papa for God uh, as the proxy voice for God. And so tradition at that point is elevated um, on par with Scripture, which is really putting it above Scripture. These announcements that, and pronouncements are there. The, the issue of the Catholic Church, um, where it gets uh, messy, is with uh, the gospel. The gospel is by grace alone. And what happened is, is there was a codified um, application to how you grow in, 
in your faith by doing certain things. These are religious rites like infant baptism, um, taking the Catholic mass, confession or last rites. All of these things kept you in good grace with God. It, It was not just clear that it was making you saved, but it for sure became a thing through the Catholic pronouncements and um, codification of that in councils that that keeps you in saving grace. So in essence, these things, by taking the mass, by performing confession, by being baptized, by having a priest pronounce last rites, that's keeping you in good grace. It's infusing saving grace. That's the language that's used there. It's called ex opere operato in Latin. It's the, the operations of grace in your life through these religious rites. Well, you say, where did that come from? That came from Catholic tradition and pronouncements that became authoritative on par with Scripture. The issue of the the muddiness of the gospel in the Catholic Church is a fruit, is actually secondary to the deeper issue of creating tradition that is as authoritative as Scripture. That's That's the foundational problem. That's what Jesus is unearthing here. He's saying that tradition... Um, cannot be a smokescreen for hypocrisy. We say, well, what about in the Protestant church? Are we guilty of these things? Sure. We'll, we'll raise up, a, a venerate a saint or, or you know, really look to certain people to quote from or theology books that have stood the test of time and we'll elevate those as if they have more weight than anything else. But really everything we say has to come back to the Bible and the Bible words. Even the doctrine that we believe that we write down on paper and say, I believe that I am saved by grace alone. I believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. I believe the Bible is divinely inspired, inerrant, authoritative. It's infallible. All those doctrinal beliefs have to be brought circumspect to the word of God and checked with scripture. Only scripture is truth. And the doctrine and the teaching of scripture is the doctrine that we contend for. We contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to us, First Timothy 4, 16, keep close watch on yourself. You're watching yourself. You're watching your life. What else are you watching? And you're teaching. What are you believing now? Where are you drifting to? What are you putting your um, trust in? I bring it back to the scripture. Persist in this. For in doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That's the idea that you will grow in your sanctification all the way um, towards heaven. That's what that's talking about. First Timothy 6, 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted in you, to you. That's the idea of guarding the gospel. And you do that by, by bringing everything circumspect to the word of God. Christ is the head of the church. To trust in tradition, to trust in legalism, is to usurp the authority of Christ. Well, first of all, adding anything to scripture is the slippery slope of legalism. Secondly, adding harmful applications is the second step into legalism or following these things. Adding harmful applications. What does that mean? That means that's where you twist scripture to be a legalist. It's not just adding new things to scripture that makes you a legalist. You might be a legalist if you are twisting scripture to your own end and saying what it doesn't say. Saying what it doesn't say. Well, what does that look like? Well, that's what, that's what Jesus reveals that the Pharisees were doing. Because look at verse 4 of Matthew 15. It says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Stop there. He's bringing up 
the fifth commandment, first of all, of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. There's two tables, meaning two halves of the Ten Commandments. One to four goes vertical. It talks about honoring God. You, don't, don't, you can't have false images. You, you, you honor God. And then the fifth commandment begins the second table, which all of these are horizontal, how you interact with people commands. You don't covet, lie, steal, um, and you honor father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. It's probably the overarching commandment here starting on the second table. That's what he brings up. You're honoring father and mother. Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, 16. It says it will go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Ephesians 6 repeats this, that it may go well with you. And um, it's the first commandment with the promise. The second law that he's bringing up is the idea of honoring parents in the sense that you don't insult them. Not only do you build them up and take care of your parents and honor them, you don't insult them. Because if you insult them under Old Testament law, Exodus 21, 17, he who curses his father, his mother, shall be put to death. It's over. Leviticus 20, verse 9, when he curses his father and mother, shall be put to death. He's cursed his father and mother. His blood is upon him. That's what Jesus is bringing up. And he's saying, you with your traditions, with your twisting of these verses, are letting people out from under the accountability of taking care of their parents. What do I mean by that? Well, you got to understand that the command to honor father and mother is practical. It's not just attitudinal. It's also obligatory. As a believer, you're supposed to take care of your parents, which means that you'll give to them your, what they need as they get older and can't take care of themselves. It's repeated in 1 Timothy 5.8. Anyone that does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, has denied the faith, which is worse than an unbeliever. It means that you're so hard-hearted. I mean, you have made yourself empty to the word of God. It's, it's void in your life if you don't care about your parents. Bible leaders and scholars of the culture, they're basically giving the culture in that day an out from taking care of their parents. How did they do it? Um, look what Jesus said, verse 5. But if you say, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained for me is given to God he need not honor his father. What's going on here? It's where people call Ali Ali oxen free. I'm out. I don't have to take care of my parents. Why? Because I'm giving it all to God. So I can't give it to you. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. I'm a believer. I know you're hurting. You're aged. You need my help. But I've made a vow to God. In Numbers chapter 30, we'll look at that verse. It says that you can't break your vow. And so I'm out. I don't owe you anything. Oh, yes, I'll spend the money on myself while I'm alive, but whatever's left when I die will go to the temple because that's God. It's playing the ultimate God card. God told me to do it. You can't argue with that. It's good. And I've got a Bible verse in Numbers chapter 30 to back up what I'm doing. And so you just have to wrestle with Numbers 30 verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So it's the ultimate power play. You pit scripture against scripture. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. Don't curse them. Don't, in other words, don't lie to them about not being able to give to them. Don't do that because that's worthy of death. But how do we get out from under that? Oh, I'll go to a priest or find a religious leader. I'll make a vow. It's called calling Corbin. 
It's I'm pledging everything to God. That's what the word Corbin means. I know there's Corbin College. I know people are named Corbin. It's all good. But the Bible here um, is calling out people's use of that word Corbin to say, I declare all everything is for God. So I'm out from under the obligation to take care of my parents. It's like, uh, uh, you know, using tricks with tax evasion or sheltering your money or giving it to charity, but not really. And you're keeping it for yourself so that you can keep it. It's making a false pledge. It's twisting scripture. It's what Satan did in the garden where Satan said to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, just again, twisting God's words, you know, tempting Eve to, to, to think, oh man, you know, I'm entitled to that because of this, this, or this. So I, Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness, he shall command his angels concerning you. Throw yourself off the temple. There's a Bible verse that will catch you. The angels are obligated. And, and Jesus goes to the right verse for the right occasion and says, you can't test the Lord. Don't put the Lord to the test. You have to apply the right verse for the right situation so that you're free of legalism. The wrong verse foisted upon somebody, it kills the soul. It hurts people. Insults were wrong. Uh, you couldn't do that. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit and were struck dead. Uh, lying to the Bible, lying to your own conscience and ignoring the, the accountability of the word and insulting your, your parents through, uh, through sort of playing games with your obligation is spiritually lethal. Spiritually lethal. It makes void the word of God to you. God's word, which is thunder and lightning. God's word, which is the bright signing sun of accountability in your life. God's word, which is powerful truth that shall not return empty. Your heart can become hardened by legalism to all of that power where you are ignoring it. You're anesthetized to it. You're desensitized to it. You won't hear it. You don't care because you're twisting scripture and using your own application to your own ends Nothing's wrong with the scripture. Nothing's wrong. The lights don't get turned off with the scripture. Everything's wrong with the heart. Everything's wrong with the wrong teacher and the wrong hearer. It's responding and in rejection to what's there. The issue is never with the Bible. It's the empty heart. All right, that leads us finally to verses 7 and 9. So first of all, elevating um, tradition above God's word. That's, that's legalism. Adding to scripture, twisting applications. Here's the second point. It's elevating self above God. Elevating self above God. You elevate your tradition, then you elevate you above God. That's how you become a legalist, or that's how you fall prey to legalism as you, you come under people who are elevating self above God or God's word. That's why I'm glad you guys come, because I believe you come to hear God's word. I think that if I stopped teaching the Bible or decided to go in some other direction, you wouldn't come anymore because you're not here for me. And I'm not, I, I don't have the personality to pull off elevating myself, but some people do. And that's dangerous. You have to be careful. It's unregenerate worship. Look at verse 7. This is what Jesus says about them that you never once said about you. You hypocrites. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There it is. It comes back to the teaching again. 
Worship here should not be confused or isolated with only singing. This is not just the act of mouthing lyrics and your heart is gone. It is that. It's, uh, it's bigger than that. It's your mindset all the time where you think you're right with God. You've obeyed traditions. You're good, but you're completely empty on the inside. You're, you're full of dead men's bones. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 23 of the Pharisees. You clean the outside, the white sepulcher tomb. You're, you're, you look good on the outside, but inside, you're just dead inside. It's the idea of sitting uh, six feet from the professor's nose. I know none of you would be um, in this category here at church, but it's the idea that the professor is, is speaking and you're in class and you're, you're typing or you're writing stuff down. Really, you're drawing pictures and your mind is a billion miles away from whatever that prof is saying to you six feet away. That's, that's the distance and disparity between where your heart is and where it should be. You're empty instead of alive. And you look the part, but you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is a compound word. It was a word used for Greco-Roman actors. They, they look good on the outside. They're, you know, they're following a script. But really, the word is hupo for hypocrite. It's hupo and then crite. It's under and interpreting. You're interpreting from below. You're bringing stuff up from beneath and just play acting versus being the real thing. It's like watching a really believable actor in a movie or a show series that you kind of like, and you go, man, I really like this person. I get, um, I'm kind of connected. And then you hear them offline in an interview, and they have a British accent. And you're like, man, you're weird. I don't even understand you whatsoever. Not that British accents are weird. But it's just funny, though, isn't it? It's interesting when people have like some kind of different accent or different persona, or they have this great glowing life um, on on the show, but really their household is a wreck. That's hypocrisy. Many people rehearse religion on the outside and don't know Jesus at all on the inside, on the inside. It's important to think that through. The worst thing is to be in influence as a hypocrite in the church, and that's what you have here in verse 9, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're teaching as if it's a Bible truth, And teaching something that's tradition as if it's a command. That's the problem. It's unregenerate teaching and unregenerate worship and then unregenerate teachers. That's verse 9. The false teachers 500 years before in 586 B.C. That's where this is quoted from, by the way. Verses 8 and 9 is a quotation from Isaiah. And the Isaiah time period, right before they were going into Babylonian captivity, right before they were going to be corralled into, from Judah, the southern kingdom, into Babylon, these teachers were acting hypocritically. They were empty inside, empty teachers, and everyone was following that 500 years before. And Jesus is saying, I've come, and now we are back to the future. We're back to the future. You're doing it again. Your worship is vain. Your worship is aimless. Aimless. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain or aimlessness do they worship me. It's manipulation and pressure from the commands of men. So how do you guard against legalism? Let's bring this to a rapid close. How do you protect yourself? Well, don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's number one. Number two, don't underestimate the ability to read the Bible for yourself and discern truth. Don't underestimate the ability to um, discern whether I'm speaking truth or error. Don't 
underestimate that. God, in 1 John chapter 2, it says he's given every believer the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, People will teach a false teaching where they say it's the second level where you get the second blessing or the double dose of the Holy Spirit. No, when you are saved, you are anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have spiritual discernment. You're a spiritually minded person and you're able to discern truth from error. When I type the sermon, um, just in this season of my sermon preparation, I sit with my laptop open. I have you know, the English and Greek um, on one half of my screen, the other half is a Word doc, but I basically just type from the English text the sermon, just off the top. I put an outline together and then just type. And the reason I do that first and foremost is because I want the witness of the Word of God just to hit me just like it would you. And I want to have a train of thought in terms of what the Bible is saying, and I put the sermon together from that. And about 80% of what I type just off the top as I'm studying and looking at the English Bible, that's what I preach and that's what I say. And then I take it apart and I talk to people about it and I read commentaries and and check it with what other teachers have said about it. But a lot of that stuff is just some extra filler, like little quotes that I say, because we have access to the Bible. Don't underestimate your access to scripture and the ability to understand it. It's inherently clear. It's meant to be that way. 1 John 4 says, uh, verse 1, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every person, every line that people give you. Don't believe every teaching, but test the spirits. Spirits is teachings. Uh, Test them. See whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's like Sunday school um, teaching here. Are they saying Jesus is God? Then check. Good. Are they saying the Bible is truth? Check. It's, it's the only inspired truth. Check. Got it. I mean, this is what the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts. And we know we have the truth because we have the Holy Spirit. So don't underestimate that. So how does this affect my life? Well, um, practically speaking... On the face of things, just like I said, this all seems like kind of a harmless, subtle danger, but it really is a big danger. Legalism is a big-time thing. Hypocrisy is a big-time thing in the life of a believer. I know. I I have to fight it in my own life. You have to fight for the integrity of the Christian life in your own life, right? You do. And one of the ways that we fall off the rails is when we, we want something so bad, we start to idolize something as a preference, We want it our way. You know, I wish the church did this, or I wish these people treated me this way rather than that way. And if they would, then I would be fine. Or if I could just control that person or that thing to happen in the way that I want it to, then I'm right with God. Then I'm good. And by doing those things or allowing for those things to happen in your heart where a preference becomes something that's a tradition on par with scripture. This is something I'm going to die over. This is something I'm going to sever a relationship over. This is something I'm gonna disfellowship from people from over. I'm going to get mad over this. That's legalism. That's the destruction that happens. That's the satanic division that happens within the church. It's all disguised under preferences. This is the way I would want it. Why why not take this point? Well, does the Bible expressly say that we have to do it this way or that, or does it expressly say that we're doing it wrongly by doing it this way or that way? We have to ask those questions. I mean, this is a real check in my own heart to let a lot of stuff go, to not be so concerned about having it my way. Things should not be deal breakers. 
and polarizing relationships. At risk of bringing up an old taboo thing in the church, uh, there was a national movement, especially in the 80s and in the 90s, called Growing Kids God's Way. And, it, you know, it was a book of practical parenting wisdom on, you know, how to raise kids, whether you pick the baby up when they're crying or not. And things are very personal with parenting and, and preferences. But, but, you know, the author of that put Bible verses with his principles and he elevated the principles on par with scripture in the level where people would go to war over whether you were following that or not. And it became very divisive. Um, I'm not saying that there weren't some good wisdom tips from that curriculum. But in any curriculum that's extra biblical, it is a curriculum, anything. You just have to keep it where it is. Any guest speaker, I mean, you know, I name certain speakers almost every week that I quote from. And, but you have to say the authority is the Bible and, and we have the Holy Spirit to understand what is the Bible. And that's what we come back to more than anything else. When you don't come back to the basics of the gospel for why you do what you do, why you claim that you are who you are, you can get really wrapped up in a performance trap where you will lose the assurance of your salvation because we can never do enough or we can never not do enough. We have to come back to the gospel. What is solid? What is our firm foundation? It's the truth. It's the gospel.